Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Hey Man, It's Okay. I am Sky, and I'm joined here with my new co-host, Ryan, again. And we're here to discuss Ryan's journey and kind of for you guys to find out why he's here, why he's, you know, a credible source for information and maybe talk about some lived experience. So let's get into it. Sounds good. I'm excited. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for, you know, being part of this, Ryan. It's uh, it's really a joy to have you here and to talk about some of these topics with you because you offer such a different perspective than I do because, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, just a normal guy, don't have any training, just kind of have studied into mental health and you're really involved in the mental health community and, and, you know, being a licensed therapist. So let's talk about like where you came from and why you're here and a little bit about your history. Sure. Sure. Maybe we'll get into the long story of this. This is my second career. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, which is basically the designation you have to have in California to practice legal psychotherapy. And how I got here, this is my second career, my second act. And it was quite the mental health journey sort of in between those two acts, which kind of brought me to this place. My first career was in nightlife and hospitality. I started sort of when I was, well, I'll back it up all the way kind of to the beginning and where kind of mental health really initially entered my life. When I was really young, I had kind of a difficult childhood. My father, while a good provider, I had a lot of rage, maybe even a little narcissism, not a lot of love to give and kind of made for a rather unhappy childhood for myself. And when I was almost, you know, maybe my earliest memories, I believe I was clinically depressed, probably starting, you know, as early as at the age of eight, nine, 10, I thought about suicide back then. And I thought about the different ways I would do it. And I didn't have any of the, back then, mental health was not anywhere near part of our culture in the way that it is today. You know, I, I feel like, especially, you know, in the time we're at now, it's like part of almost everybody's you know, vocabulary or, you know, it's mental health, you know, diagnoses are kind of in the, you know, the general lexicon. Yeah. So back then I just knew I didn't want to live and I wasn't, I was, you know, really, really depressed and thank God I had a beautiful uncle who is still my mentor today. He is a a Harvard educated psychologist. He's still someone I look up to, you know, almost more than anyone, you know, on this planet. And, uh, and he really helped me more than anything back then. And what he really did was normalize therapy for me at, you know, kind of the age of maybe 13 or 14, which is went and saw my, my first therapist. And I I didn't have a lot of sessions with him. I might've been like five or six, but it was enough that I was able to kind of put words to the experience I was having. He was able to then also tell my parents that I was clinically depressed and that made, you know, quite the impact. I don't think it necessarily like helped uh, the relationship that I had with them, but I think it gave me just a way to describe my experience and therefore maybe a way to kind of work on it a little. Granted, half I didn't, the battle is learning, is learning how to express those things. You know, I, I probably don't give that a ton of thought these days because it's Man, because I've been talking about it maybe since I was 13 and I'm 43 now. And so, but yeah, absolutely. It really, being able to understand my experience and then also that, you know, it wasn't this 
while while there was definitely a lot of stigma for depression, it at least gave me some comfort that there, you know, that there was, you know, a way to describe what I was going through. That being said, I looked to make family elsewhere and kind of a side little tangent here. I lived at the time, probably four or five miles from Disneyland and our parents would- Happiest place on earth. Yeah, it created a lot of happiness for me and actually might have helped, you know, sort of get me out of my depression. Our parents at the time, me and a whole bunch of our friends, we would get annual passports, which were only about $100 at the time. And you can and only get those if you're a Southern California resident, correct? That, that was true. That was true. So you're we part of like the, the locals club. pass. Yep, yep. <laughs> and our parents kind of used it as daycare in a lot of ways, like just, you know, drop them off at Disneyland. They would take turns as to who would drive. And there was the, in Tomorrowland, a lot of you might know, be familiar with Tomorrowland. There was a cover band that would play, you know, I think almost every night during the summer, during the weekends in the other times. And it created this big hangout for kids our age, you know, sort of like all around the county that would come. And there would be anywhere from like 500 to like 1500 kids that would be hanging out there, you know, at any given time, anywhere from like 12, maybe even younger, you know, 10, 11, all the way to, you know, probably 18 or so. And, you know, that's a pretty pretty widespread. So, I mean, I imagine that you had kind of separated because the party goers from 12 to 18 are completely different. <laughs> well, I, at the time, and the reason I even brought up kind of those like, you know, 11 or 12 year olds was a lot of times like the older brother would take his little brother and you'd have oh, this cool. you know, okay. kind of like punk little, you know, little kids. And <laughs> All right. The coolest part about it was that it was such a welcoming, everybody was really friendly to one another. There were obviously cliques and, you know, there was like a group of ravers, a group of goths and punks and, you know, and everything in between. And in a lot of ways, I found a home in making friends and I made a ton of friends while I was there. And, you know, and I really kind of created my, my family outside of the family. You know, I already had good group of, you know, local friends and from Garden Grove, which is where I grew up. But this really kind of expanded that horizon. And I sort of took that and ran. And next thing you know, I was sort of helping people throw their their house parties. And I would you know, hire everyone from like the security to the DJ. Sometimes we go get really getting your hands into everything. Then a cleanup crew, you know, the next morning, make sure their house looked great, you know, for their when (laughs) for when their parents came home. That's pretty good. Uh, And that turned into a career in sort of in nightlife and hospitality. And what an odd way into that. Yeah, yeah, really, really. I mean, it really just kind of happened to me in a lot of ways. Obviously, I I had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, and I would I started my own clubs through a lot of different like all ages events, which then turned to like twenty one and over events, and and I ended up finding myself in Las Vegas uh, when I was about twenty four. Happiest uh, place on earth for adults. So you went yeah. from Disneyland <laughs> yeah, for sure kids did. to Disneyland for adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of became one of the bigger VIP hosts probably out there. And I was over at a Tao nightclub, which at the time was really the, you know, kind of the place to be for sure. And, you know, I, I was, I was living the high life out there. That's for sure. A lot of my clients were celebrities, were whales, you know, were, you know, incredibly wealthy. And my job was sort of just create the party, make sure everybody had a great time and keep people spending money. I, you know, I, I loved it actually. It was a, I don't know if, if, 
things hadn't changed, I don't know that I'd still be doing it today. It, it really, you might be uh, running your own business doing it. Definitely. Something like that. Yeah. But it definitely took a toll on the body. And yeah. I, um, 30, uh, I was still out there and one of my hips started hurting and I didn't really think a whole lot of it. I had, I was just in like a, like an amateur boxing match. I mean, I was in pretty damn great shape and, and feeling of invincible really. And I didn't do anything about it. I just kind of getting For worse and worse. Probably six months, I think. That Ooh, okay. I, I listened to some bad advice. Well, I mean, who knew kind of what was really going on with At me? At 30, but somebody, like you're uh, not going to expect something like that, you know, to be much wrong with you. Just you're sore. You think it's just age, right? Totally. Totally. <laughs> I, somebody told me it was a pulled hip flexor, which made sense. It sounded good. It, I heard those take a long time to heal. So, but it just kept getting worse, kept getting worse, worse and worse. Finally got to the point, I think I... I couldn't walk. I had to be on crutches and finally ended up going to the doctor. And I remember he, I, I took some x-rays again, wasn't thinking much of it, you know, probably stay off of it, you know, for a few months and you're good. He came back into the office with the x-rays, just handed me a pamphlet, you know, what to expect when you get a total hip replacement. And that's going to be a shock. Total shock. I couldn't believe it and ended up going to a handful of different doctors, all had kind of different methods to just do the same thing and eventually just ended up getting uh, one of my hips replaced. And then I think as we were, as they were replacing that one, they noticed that the other hip was going out. So about six to eight months later, I ended up having that hip replaced. And, you know, so during this time, I ended up moving back from Las Vegas back to my mom's guest bedroom. I was in a lot of pain. I was prescribed a lot of opiates. I was not moving very much. I was miserable, drinking a lot of alcohol. And also, you know, in the middle of kind of losing my identity, kind of feeling like my career was slipping out of my hands. Part of me not wanting to go back to it as well. I remember we have a, a family friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he was kind of the first one to level with me and said, you know, your life is going to be drastically different. You know, you're not going to be able to do the same things that you were once doing. You, you know, you can't be running around all over the place again. You know, you're not going to run nightclubs, at least not in the same capacity that you were before. And I imagine that took its, that took its toll on you because you're kind of like, you know, at the top of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really went from like living in a penthouse in Vegas to like living in my mom's guest bedroom. I mean, it was a drastic change of events and it only got worse from there. I found out, well, I, I had kind of always known I had a lot of issues with my back and I'm not sure if all that time in bed or what it was sort of exacerbated things for me, but I ended up having to have a spinal fusion, pretty much the same sort of fusion that Tiger Woods had. And how long uh, after your hip surgery was that? Maybe like another six months or so. Man, but so you're just put, getting hammered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like, get ready for surgery, recovery, PT, time to get ready for another surgery, recovery, and then, you know, more pain, figuring out kind of what we were going to do with my back, that surgery. And that surgery was just awful. We all kind of know what happened to Tiger Woods after his spinal yeah. fusion. You know, I think it took him four years to really bounce back. I feel like I was in bed for at least nine months or so and just miserable, probably taking more opiates. And I was in a real bad place. I mean, I couldn't have been more depressed, you know, and, and sort of at the same time, my father took his life about 
six or seven years kind of before all of this had happened. And okay. a lot of, I, I didn't really, I didn't really process that a whole lot. I had just moved to Las Vegas kind of when that had happened. And I, I came back to Orange County, you know, for the, the funeral and, you know, to take care of things and maybe spent a month back down in Orange County and then went back to Las Vegas and I really didn't have to think about it a whole lot. And so sort of being back, you know, in the house that, you know, he had lived and sort of kind of facing some of those demons again, this time kind of with the feeling that, you know, I was the one in this terribly depressed place that wasn't ever going to get better. And it was a nagging thought of mine for quite some time, kind of as, you know, each one of these sort of surgeries happened and then not feeling like I was getting any better. Like, is this ever going to freaking end? I mean, it really kept kind of feeling worse in a lot of ways. And, and the back surgery sure didn't feel like it helped. And I figured the best way out of this was to take my own life as well. It wasn't really an overnight decision. It wasn't a well thought out plan, but it wasn't basically waited kind of just, I don't know, for the right moment where I kind of had, I felt like, I guess, courage, which is not probably a good way to put it, but felt like I could go through with it. And so now if, if yeah. there were people around you who had been like trained to look for the warning signs, can you see warning signs in yourself that you can think back and be like, yeah, if someone would have picked up on this, maybe, you know, I wouldn't have been feeling this way if someone would have talked to me about it or something. So this is a really difficult question to answer. Okay. I did have some people that were around. I had a psychiatrist. I remember pretty clearly sort of telling him that I didn't feel like living. I might have caged it in a way where, you know, I wasn't dumb that, you know, if I were to overtly say it, there could be consequences. So, and at the same time, could he have stepped in? I don't think I had any therapists at the time. Okay. You know, could they have stepped in? Could the psychiatrist have referred other therapists? You know, and don't think I talked about how bad I was actually feeling. I mean, I, I think it was evident in my behavior, but I don't think I was, you know, if the friends I was reaching out to, I was trying to appear fine and strong. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, what we all try to do, right, when we're struggling is try to be fine. In fact, you know, I was I was with a friend that night and we went down to kind of like the local bars and he had no no clue, you know, and and I just asked him to kind of take me home a little later and I think he was more than shocked, you know, that and him and I talked actually um it was a little while, it was a while after that and you know, and it, it might be interesting to kind of explore just this, but he, well, you, you and I, Sky, were kind of talking about like just kind of brushing it off or, you know, like just pick yourself up. And he was telling me like he couldn't understand how anybody could get to a place to, you know, do what I did. And, you know, that he had never, you know, been in a place like that. And, and, and again, couldn't even imagine, you know, somebody it being as low as I was to go through with something like that. Granted, you know, I had a father who did it. I had a couple of friends who had, you know, uh, completed as well. And so the option, and I had thought about it, you know, since I was a kid, you know, and so the option yeah. was very much like on the table almost at all times. And something I really encourage people to do if they are thinking about it is just to take the option off the table, at least for just a little while, you know, while we might be able to work together. Because just having that option open, I think is what it also keeps us from really moving forward a lot too, because we always have this backdoor 
plan B or plan Z. At least I did. I always had, you know, if this doesn't work out all the way, like I, I can just, you know, I can just exit stage left. I, I can just go through with this thing and, you know, it's no big deal. You know, uh, you know, my dad did it, worked for him. And so I think that sort of being my environment. And again, we were also maybe in a place, this was 2013. So this is, you know, over 10 years ago, I actually sort of celebrated what I call like my life day I am back in March and mental health wasn't anywhere near sort of, a, you know, as present in the culture as it is right now. Yeah, it's definitely a huge conversation that you see a lot more these days. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is wonderful. You know, it's, it's, and it's about time, you know, it's about time. And at the same time, you know, why is also mental health getting worse and worse, you know, especially for our kids? I'm sure, you know, that's a, another topic we can really get into, but I also, you know, was coming from a place of, you know, where we put a lot of masks on, you know, we didn't, we were Las Vegas, you know, nightclub hosts. And, you know, I was always sort of kind of putting on some sort of face and as, you know, as authentic as that might've been for me, it's still, you know, we presented that we were always great. You know, we were always the life of the party. So it's interesting now thinking back, like, you know, that's a very different guy and I almost don't even know how to associate with him a lot, but thinking back as to where I was and the way that I communicate with people now. And, you know, I'm always having, you know, deep conversations, even in my, you know, which probably shouldn't have as many deep conversations in my, in my personal life, but, you know, I get to have these great, beautiful, deep conversations with clients all day long. And I don't even think I would have known how to do that, you know, back then. Okay. You know, not in the same way and and not in the same, you know, self-reflection or introspection. So, yeah. So I guess to kind of just wrap that story up, I attempted with a firearm, didn't know how to use really a firearm and gun safety. You keep the clip away from the bullets, away from the actual gun. And also me being somewhat inebriated, couldn't quite figure it out. And I ended up using the wrong bullet and the wrong gun which truly saved my life. And I'm sure I, you know, there's a, some miraculous and spiritual reasons I think that I live too. But the uh, physics of it is the bullet lost velocity a little, just enough, still went off and found sort of the perfect place right where my third eye is. And so it's just, it's just sitting in there. Maybe. We're not, you know, I haven't gotten a, an x-ray. I'm assuming it is, but somebody had asked me some good questions the other day. Like, well, you know, do you ever get any pressure? Like, do you, I think they even asked, like, do you get a zit or anything like, <laughs> you know, and what have you put a magnet up to it? And like all those things kind of really scare me because I, you know, if it is still there, I don't want it to move, but I do have a pretty shocking x-ray of where it landed. And I guess, for listeners, the reason it could very much still be there is we did nothing to extract it, or at least no nobody. It found its perfect spot. Really, me being here is a miracle, but the fact that all I needed was like 20 stitches underneath my jaw and no surgical repair, that I'm not paralyzed, that, you know, I, I have all my brain function, you know, in this x-ray. I mean, it's a hair away from my skull and wow, honestly couldn't be luckier. I, it's It's been a while since I looked at the stats, but I went down a rabbit hole one night and, you know, I think I found that it's like one to 2% of gunshot wounds to the head 
end up living a normal life afterwards, you know, something like that, maybe like one to 3%. But, and since I've, you know, since that happened and since I've been in this profession now and, and a handful of people, more than a handful of people know my story, but I've had people reach out to me and talk to others who have done the same thing. And unfortunately, you know, most of those stories, people have lost their sight, people have, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy that it like didn't even end up in like hitting your ocular nerve or I mean, doing some serious damage to your brain. Yeah. How miraculous yeah. that it just kind of, I bet that it opened up a lot for you. You know, it sits yeah. there, right? No, and no, I bet that no. kind of opened your third eye into other ways of thinking and philosophies and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, I've always been so, sort of a deep thinker and always been into meditation and spirituality and different, you know, religions, but sure. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and those things I'm, I'm really into these days, but metaphorically, sure. I mean, it, it was definitely my rebirth in a lot of ways, or, or at least it ended up sort of being my rebirth because, you know, immediately after, or at least for like six months, well, I would say actually the year after was still, was maybe even worse than the year before. Like it was, a, it was a really difficult journey post immediately post attempt you, you know and and you were talking about uh, me being lucky or something like that i was still in the hospital i think it was like my second or third day and i was finally alone for like just a brief second when you do something like this and if you end up in the hospital they have somebody by your side 24 7 until you are shipped off to uh, the psych hospital and so i was actually in the hospital for five days even though even though they were doing nothing i probably could have walked out the next morning had i not been put on a psychiatric hold and so i get this moment with this doctor and you know for the first time i'm asking someone does this happen often living and he was walking out the door and he turns around and he says, are you asking if you're lucky? And I said, sure, something like that. And he said, well, you wanted to die, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, and I still do. And I said, well, then you're probably the most unlucky mother ever I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and, <laughs> because you didn't accomplish what you wanted. Because I didn't, no, no. You know, and he was obviously, <laughs> he, he was trying to sort of prove a point. I think he might've been right. And I definitely, in that moment, wasn't happy to still be alive. Although, you know, there were some real hard moments immediately after in my two little cousins came in at the same time. And, you know, when you're either as depressed as I was, or, you know, in that like myopic tunnel vision, depression, where you're only thinking about one way out and you're kind of only thinking about yourself, you know, you're just in pain, you know, both physically and mentally, at least I was, I didn't think about those people. And that kind of kept happening, you know, like friends would come in and that was really difficult to kind of face these people who I, I wasn't thinking of, but who really loved me and something, you know, if I'm talking to somebody else who's going through that place, it, it is often to like, think about some of the other, you know, if they if you do have people that love you, you know, it's think about them, you know, because. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Know. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who attempt, you know, attempting to end their life that don't, I mean, they're thinking about what their mm -hmm. pain is and what the things they're going through. So, you know, it's kind of hard to think about your family members and all that mourning, yeah. mourning you or, you know, showing love to you when you're in this 
deep, dark place. You know, and one thing that I have kind of always understood, but also recognized when my dad completed and when, you know, a couple of my other friends took their lives, you know, that you don't hear it as much today, but I'm, I'm sure plenty of people still believe this, you know, that it's such a selfish, self-absorbed thing to do. And while in many ways that there's some truth to that, sure. But for the person going through it, a lot of times this was true with me. I know it was true with my dad. We're just feeling like we don't want to be a burden any longer. So I don't know. That's, that's something to think about that, you know, I, th I think we can be really hard on people who have attempted or, you know, we may have that thought about somebody who's completed, you know, that, you know, how could they? Let me tell you, when I was in the hospital, I had a relative walk in to think I was like just two days after and start yelling at me and telling me like I was an asshole. How could I, you know, how basically like, how dare you? We raised you better. I mean, it was the most insensitive, harsh, and just backwards, unempathetic way of thinking. And, you know, I think just so full of judgment that- Yeah, and that's definitely not the healthy way to go about it. No, you, you know, and it's that when people are met with that, you know, it's you even more so, you know, I think in that moment, I was like, well, let me show you again, you know, kind of a thing. And so, yeah. So, so if anybody ever- tells you that they're thinking about this at all, please meet them with empathy, with love, with support, you know, and not judgment. So I know that when I was uneducated about mental health, when I first heard about my cousin dying by suicide, one of the first things I thought was how selfish, how could he do something like this to his family, no. to his friends? But I mean, the more I learned about it, the more I realized that it's it's not about everybody else. It's about the internal struggles. And, you know, like you said, it's they don't want to feel like a burden anymore. And sometimes no. it's hard for people who haven't been through that to realize these things. So it is oh, kind of a balance of if you're, you know, if you know somebody who's going through something like this, you know, to let them know that people love them, right? That and, and that they're not a burden, you know, both, you know, that they're being heard and they're being supported. Yeah, I think that's really a beautiful sentiment because kind of when we see someone being a way that we don't, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. When we see someone who's struggling, a lot of the times that makes us uncomfortable and it makes us kind of move away from that person and like stop hanging out and talking to that person. Did you see more of that or did you see more of like, you really found out who your real friends were after that. I think I'm I'm really lucky to have a lot of really good friends. Immediately after I left the the hospital and ended up in a psych hospital. I was in a psych hospital in Alhambra for ten days, I think. And it was really there that the the fire inside me to become a therapist. Once I got in there, I was really advocating for others. And this was one of the few psych hospitals that would allow us to still smoke. And, you know, there's not a whole lot to do when you're in a psych hospital. And so anytime I had a friend come, which, you know, thank God I had quite a few friends that, you know, came and visited me and I'd always make them bring a carton of cigarettes and I would give out, you know, a pack of cigarettes to all the different clients, <laughs> to the patients in there. So I, I don't know, I guess that's a little tangent about, you know, sort of the good support that I had. Yeah. I felt incredibly, you know, I felt a ton of shame 
And if anything, I was probably pushing people away a bit at the time. I think I had, you know, a handful of people that there was a select few, you know, that I, I wanted to really come visit me. So yeah. I actually have a question before you move forward. Now, earlier, you mentioned your uncle who was really like a mentor to you. Was he mm-hmm. around during this time? And how did that affect your relationship with him? Because it, I know it sounded like he was very important for a long time yeah. to you. Well, it was definitely on me that I don't think I was reaching out to him in my despair. But afterwards, he came in. So I went to a treatment center after the psych hospital and you know he came and visited me once and he said i'll never forget you know he told me that you know ryan there's always hope there's always hope and i i thought it was a crock of shit at the time <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> you know but i now have like a little sign in my at my house that says there's always hope and yeah I, he was a good sounding board he you know he just would listen that's good yeah he was also instrumental in that time in moving forward. You know, there were a few people who were very instrumental. So, so when I was in treatment and I have no problem saying I was in a terrible treatment center, they were, this is also the time where, you know, treatment centers were just probably fully unregulated you know, all sorts of people were popping them up all over the place and they weren't really providing whole lot of treatment you know now it's a whole you know at least regulation here in california is completely different when it comes to the way these places are managed they were taking advantage of me and taking advantage of my family you know at one point we had somebody sort of pit me against my brother and you know and actually when you talk about you know sort of some of the friends that might have distanced you know there were some friends that i think pulled away and you know maybe knowing that you know i was in a psych hospital or that i was in you know a treatment center there were definitely a lot more though that that were there for me and so that's good uh, but you know i did have a group therapist that happens to be you know kind of one of these therapist influencers i think he's actually written a, i mean he's he's an author and he's got a lot of good stuff to say his name's john kim and he's the angry therapist i think on instagram and kind of his his brand he happened to be my group therapist when i first got to this treatment center and i think you know i had like five or six groups with him or so and but I'd get to talk to him afterwards, and he really pushed me. He actually he actually promised me that if I you know applied to grad school and I got you know to be an associate that he would hire me. I completely forgot about that until like the, the <laughs> night before I got licensed. But during the time, it was definitely the, that motivation. I had another therapist outside of the treatment center, and then I also had my uncle. You know who were all really rooting and pushing. I had a I have an amazing cousin who was really pushing. A couple of them who were really pushing for me to apply, and so I applied to grad school while I was there, and that was sort of my ticket out in a lot of ways. And so I ended up enrolling in Pepperdine, probably like, yeah, it was probably six months. You know, sort of six or seven months after that event, and that I started. And wow, that's not very long in between. No, it wasn't, but I had to do something. And yeah, what um, a quick change. Yeah. I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of resentment towards people, towards the treatment center, towards even myself, you know, that things had kind of gotten to where they were. And so I had a lot of fire inside. I was, you know, pretty motivated. I found somebody to live with in Malibu, right on the water. And I was, you know, it was it was definitely a quick transition from the tre- treatment center. I ended up moving back down to Orange County and uh, to I, I moved in with my best friend down here. I was living there for three months while I was going to Pepperdine down here. 
he ended up passing away while we were living together there. And so, and that was another like real huge hurdle, you know, kind of like right as I was getting, you know, my legs under me again, that happened. And, you know, but through all of these things and especially kind of going to grad school, you know, while I was going through that, I really was taking in everything I was learning about psychology and all the different like modalities of therapy and seeing which ones, you know, I could really kind of apply to myself or which ones made sense. And, you know, if you go to grad school for clinical psychology, you know, you really are a lot of the classes have you do a lot of, you know, self-reflection in a lot of the work. I know some programs make you go to therapy as part of our clinical hours, we could use therapy as, you know, a way to kind of get like 300 extra hours if we, you know, sort of documented or at least just kept track of our our own individual personal therapy that we were doing. And so I got, I did a lot of work, you know, sort of on myself going through there and, you know, especially like our, our trauma class, you know, I, I felt like every week I was having to write about, you know, write another two or three page paper, maybe more, probably more than that about, <laughs> about my own trauma. And, yeah, man, that was a hard, that was a hard class for just about anybody to go through, but, you know, to be reflecting, you know, over and over and over again. But can I ask how prevalent was it in like amongst your, the population of students that you were with at Pepperdine, how prevalent yeah. was it that someone came from a traumatic experience, maybe not as, as traumatic as your experience, but like, did you find that a lot of like people were there because they had traumatic experience or because someone they love had traumatic experience? Was there like a a balance to that? I don't know, but I, a lot, I would say a lot. Okay. I don't, I don't okay. want to reinforce the stigma that, you know, there is this stigma that therapists, you know, are all kind of, you know, are all going through their own shit or, you know, well, all, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, the questions just come, come and pop in my brain. I'm like, okay, I got to ask that. <laughs> yeah. And there were definitely a lot of people who had, who chose this path for a reason, right? Like either therapy helped them a lot. I don't think, you know, people necessarily were going to grad school to work through things. I think that was definitely just a byproduct, but I definitely think, you know, people's, the people I think who were most passionate though, you know, had probably endured some real trauma in their own lives and, and really, you know, wanted to make a difference. I think that's how you can tell the difference of people who care a little bit more and don't care a little bit more is unfortunately, sometimes we have to go through things in order to grow and change. So there's more motivation for you no. to be kind and loving and supportive instead of just being, okay, this is the clinical answer. I will say, and no offense to the, you know, younger therapists who are like, just get, you know, or younger grad students who are just getting out of, you know, out of their bachelors. There was definitely a difference in, I think the way people with more life experience were approaching grad school versus, you know, some of the others, or, or at least, you know, it, you could maybe see that a bit clinically and yeah, just, yeah, the way we approached grad school, I think, you know, I was 33 when I had started, there were some people who were, you know, 23, 24, but being 33, you know, I felt like I had had the life experience, of, you know, 70 year old at this point. So <laughs> uh, how has that benefited your your life, you know, having that lived experience and having that, you know, experience going to college and coming out this other side and kind of living this whole other life. It's crazy when I, you know, I, I, like I said, I had the, my sort of 10 year anniversary of that just back in March. And 
I have no idea almost who that guy was in regards to the way I feel about life and my passion for this work now and versus the despair that I was in there. I have an old mentor who just wrote a book called When Grief is Good. And I think, you know, that's really the goal when we're going through trauma, or at least, you know, at some point is to get to a place where we can look back at this traumatic event or events and be able to put a new narrative around it that isn't, you know, despair, right? And that, you know, now I can look back and be like, you know, it was that struggle. It was that, it was that depression. It was, you know, that the lowest points, you know, that I found resilience eventually, you know, that I learned some skills that, you know, now I can look back and because of all of these different traumatic events that I've been through, that I can now use that to relate to people. And I can, you know, come from a place of understanding and know what it's like, you know, to, you know, and so to be able to, to really just, I think even better meet people where they're at. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I'm, I'm so honored to have you here as my new co-host and I'm so honored to have you on this podcast because I feel like your experience brings a, a light of credibility and brings a light of hope more than, than, you know, I could give by myself. So, you know, thanks for sharing your story and, and thank you so much for being here with me. I really, you know, I can't wait to get to know you a little bit better. And as you know, this progresses and we do a little bit more of stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. This has been fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't well, know I mean, if the story I, was so fun today, but well, I think it's, this project it, has been fun. That's the that's the point of this, right? Is to yeah. have some of those yeah. uncomfortable situations so that we can, you know, end the stigma together or at least fight the stigma together. Yeah. Because it's yeah. so important to do that. Because no, I mean, yeah. if people don't know they can talk, it's talking is you know so important. Yeah, and I know we're wrapping up here, you know, but I feel like I spent a lot of time on you know the harder the harder times in my life where like where I'm at now, you know, is I have a private practice in Newport Beach. I get to work with some of the coolest clients. I couldn't be more fortunate. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be any more grateful to be alive. And, you know, and that's really kind of my message more than anything. It's that, you know, you can eventually get to this place. I couldn't have even dreamed, you know, the point where I was at, you know, where I attempted to take my life. I couldn't, I have no idea, you know, that this would end up, you know, where I'm at and hey, I wouldn't want to go through it again. That's for damn sure. But you know, boy, I feel you. Am I lucky? And yeah, man, you know, there is sort of, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel sometimes in life. And if we just, you know, sometimes it is just putting one foot in front of the other, but sometimes, you know, we, we have to reach out for support. Sometimes it's up to our friends to really help the ones, you know, that are going through it. I think kind of the responsibility lies on all of us to, to lift each other up. You know, so I, you know, I think we all have to go through adversity and difficulty. And I guarantee if you've, you know, made it to 30 or 40, you've probably gone through, you know, a few hardships, but I hope that we can help one another so that we don't have to get to a place where we put our lives on the line. Yeah. And if you yourself, I mean, if anyone, is listening or watching, you're struggling with, you know, thoughts of suicide and thoughts of, you know, not wanting to be here on this earth anymore. Please reach out and talk to somebody, whether that be a friend, whether that be a therapist, call the 988 suicide hotline. They press one if you're a veteran and it'll go right to the veterans suicide hotline. It's so important to talk about it and know that there's people out there who are going to support you and help get you through 
the problem today. Yeah. You know, at least in Orange County, we have a couple like great resources. I think there's one like California Family Institute, another one called Living Success Center, you know, and they offer low to no cost therapy. And there's almost always, you know, somebody out there who's who's willing to help. And yeah. I can't advocate for therapy more than, than I mean, it's <laughs> not, yeah. not uh, you know, you're not biased or anything. <laughs> not biased at all. No. <laughs> you know, and I, I have therapy tomorrow morning my own session. And I look forward to that. Find a therapist that you like. You know, if you have to go through a few, that's totally okay. But man, I mean, it's still something I'm always working on something. I'm always trying to grow in one way or another. And I think we all should. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate your story and, you know, your journey and sharing that with us Mm. because it's just, you know, it's not often you get to talk to somebody who attempted suicide Mm -hmm. and live through it to tell the tales. Well, again, I am more than grateful and lucky to the stars, the universe, the source, God, all of the above uh, to, yeah. to be here and to be getting to do what I, I get to do and, and to talk to you, Sky. Yeah. Yeah. So Cool. Well, I mean, here we are. We're at the end of the episode. Thank you all for listening today. Again, my name is Ryan Heapy. This is my I'm co-host, Sky. Sky. Yep. And we are the Hey Man, It's Okay podcast. Please like, subscribe, reach out, engage with us. If you liked what I said, if you hated what I said, let us know. Let us know. If you have any suggestions for us, if you want to find a way to, you know, find other support out there, reach out, reach out. But again, thank you guys. We're on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, all under Hey Man, It's Okay. So until next time, remember, it's okay to not be okay. See you later.